All right. Um, so we're going to start tonight in Daniel chapter 7, which is, as you know, always a, a daunting thing. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I was thinking, you know, tonight I was going to start going through the uh, continuing kind of our series and talking about the occult and, um, and dealing with some of the things that we've already learned and discovered about God and then applying them to the people that come to our doorstep and would seek to, uh, I guess, sort of win us over, convert us to, um, to an occultic practice. And, and so I was thinking through that and, and I had planned on doing that the week after business meeting not actually thinking, well, the week after business meeting is the week leading up to Easter. And so it would, it would be at least kind of nice, I think, for tonight to at least talk about something Eastery. <laughs> and so I started thinking, like, what, what could we do that would at least uh, kind of address some of, the, some, of the Easter, some of the Easter story, but also be thought-provoking and challenging and maybe... Um, get us to think in ways that we, we haven't thought before or maybe interact with some of the Bible that we aren't used to interacting with um, on a regular basis. And so I started thinking of what that might be. And um, there's this statement as it gets towards in, into Passion Week of Jesus being on trial uh, before Caiaphas and where he, he mentions to Caiaphas um, that he will see him coming on the clouds. And I thought about this in relation to, you know, our body and, and what we do here on Wednesday night, and I thought maybe that would be a good thing to explore and just talk about where it comes from and, and what, what its meaning is and then how that actually applies to us. Then I thought of, like, all the problems that come with that, <laughs> with, with that. Uh, because inevitably we're going to start off in Daniel, and there's some, there's some danger, in, I think, in the church, and I, I mean this sort of tongue-in-cheek a little bit. Uh, of, of going into a book like Daniel. And the main reason is because so much of Daniel and the end of Matthew and, and various parts of Scripture have been tied explicitly to the apocalypse and the second coming of Christ and, uh, and, and all of that. So um, it's a little bit with some trepidation that we start going into uh, Daniel chapter 7, because I'm sure if you've ever read Daniel chapter 7, it's probably been in connection with, with one of those teachers on TV, or perhaps even uh, perhaps even some, uh, a pastor, Southern Baptist pastor, or something like that, that teaches through Daniel or, or Revelation. And uh, then there's a whole other group of people that have made their entire living off writing books in relation to the apocalypse. I'm sure we're all familiar with um, the late great planet Earth, which was written in the, no, has anybody heard of this? Yeah, late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey, um, written uh, in the 70s, I think it was, wasn't it? 70s, I think, um, really about the end times. I think there might have even been a prediction as to what year that, that was. I haven't read the book uh, in particular, but, but uh, you know, it always gets, it gets uh, kind of interesting in the church as we start to deal with the apocalypse. You have uh, all of these books that have been written, everybody and their dog has an opinion on how things are going to flesh out in the end. And not only that, everybody has uh, not only an opinion, but they're really passionate about their, <laughs> their, their opinion on how things are going to flesh out. And uh, I, I heard this was true, and I, I'm, I haven't seen it 
uh, but I, I've heard it enough times that, that I, from an, enough reputable people that I would take it to be true, um, that there was a poll, so a survey done of people in the pew and a corresponding poll done um, by pastors. And that one of the questions on the survey was, what book would you most like to see taught on Sunday morning? And in, from the pew, the overwhelming majority wanted Revela- the book of Revelation taught. And then there was the corresponding poll sent to pastors. What book would you least like to teach on Sunday morning? And I bet you'll never guess what the answer was. <laughs> oh, Revelation comes to the top. And, 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 and I think one, one of the, the plain reasons why is just, in my opinion anyway, is uh, because there is so much pressure. There's so many different views on the end times. A lot of people have their idea buttoned up and anything less than their idea is heresy and you're, you're that kind of thing. And so that makes it a little bit, with a little bit of fear, you go into talking about these sorts of things. Um, and certainly when we get into Daniel chapter 7, um, there are some, I think part of our minds are going to be conditioned to go towards the apocalypse. And so we're going to read it and we're going to talk about that just openly and then um, I'm going to make a case for what I think is happening here, and then we're going to transition that over into the book of Matthew, um, where Jesus is in his Passion Week leading up to his crucifixion on the cross, and then we're going to talk about what that, in the end, means for you and me. How does that mean we live? Uh, What does that say about the time that we live in? We're heading into Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday that we celebrate and we're going to be talking about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and we should. We should make a big deal about that. But it actually has a lot more implications than just we're free from sin. It actually talks about and, and speaks to how we live as Christians, and I think it's really important. So let's look at Daniel chapter 7. We're right in the middle of the book, and so it's important, I think, that we sort of just at least a little bit get our bearings there's two big sections in the book of Daniel. There's the first six chapters and the last six chapters. So the first six chapters um, deal mostly, is mostly story. There's some interpretation of dreams and things like that, but it's mostly story. And for the most part, in the first six chapters, Daniel has been called on to interpret other people's dreams. And so any of the, well, let's just say the somewhat weird stuff, in the first six chapters, is really Daniel interpreting the dreams of someone else. Um, but in chapter 7, Daniel is, has his own dreams and visions, and he's the one now wondering what the interpretation of these dreams are. And um, so in Daniel chapter 7, you notice that, that all, know too probably that also Daniel is dealing heavily with who is the king. Who is the king? That's kind of the open question because what's happened to the children of Israel? What's happened to them? They've been carted off. They're they're off in a distant land. They're off in the land of the Babylonians. The land that they had dwelt dwelt in is is a wasteland practically. Uh, Virtually nobody there. They're all hauled off to Babylon and they're in captivity. And they're told in Jeremiah and other places, when you go there, 
Pray for the success of the place that you're in, that it can succeed and settle down, set down roots and have a life. And then we all know Jeremiah 29, 11. He says, you know, I'm going to bring you back. And he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Of course, he means the generations to come after you. You're going to die in captivity, but the kids and grandkids that you have, they'll come back and everything will be good. I know the plans I have for you. And so there's reassurance to them that you're going to be in this place for a while. So set down roots and just get comfortable. And that's not a good feeling, I don't think. And of course, here you are, the children of Israel. You've worshiped the Lord for a long time. And you've declared that he's God among all gods. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And then you're taken out of your land. You're conquered by invading armies. And that's not a good testimony if you believe in the Lord, that he's the king of kings and you're his people, that you would then be conquered and taken off. And so there's this question as to who is king. And Daniel, uh, time and time again throughout the book, reiterates, you're not king. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar has that dream of the statue at the very beginning. There's four kingdoms that he sees in this statue, and he's the first kingdom, and there's going to be kingdoms subsequent to him. And yet the interpretation of the dream is there's going to be king after king after king take over, and none of them are king. God is still king. Over and over, Daniel reiterates this. And so in chapter 7, what we get is really kind of a parallel to chapter 1 which talks about four kingdoms. Here it is again. So we're going to, I'm just going to read 7, 1, just to kind of help get our bearings all the way through, but we're going to hone in on 13 and 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he, as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all, all the beasts that were before it. it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up uh, among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by its root. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a, a mouth speaking great things. You all understood that, right? I mean, that was clear as, clear as a bell, right? It is all perfect. Um, 
I think we, we a lot of times get lost in, in a lot of the interpretation of these beasts and different things like that. I want you to just pay attention to just a few things. There's, there's going to be questions probably come up in your mind as to the interpretation of all these things, and we can certainly talk about those things later, and we will. Uh, I have that plan for the future, but for now, I want to just point out just a few things that are, that are here that I want you to see thematically happening in Daniel chapter 7, the beginning here. Um, you notice these beasts uh, come up out of... Uh, out of the sea. There's, there's this stirring in the sea that happens at the very beginning. And what, what does that depict? What's the image going on there? There's a tumultuous sea. Beast rising out of it. It's chaos, isn't it? These beasts rising out of chaos, and it seems like, are these beasts all together at one time? It doesn't seem like it. It seems like successive, Right? There's a succession. And how, do, how does one succeed the other? Yeah, with Farad. Not, it's not a kind and peaceful transition, is it? There, there's one kingdom is not handed off to the next. It, it becomes very clear that one beast uh, doesn't just take over where the other left off. The beast that rises up after the one that came before it destroys the one that came before it. So out of this mass of chaos and apparently evil, here comes one beast after another devouring the one that came before it, each one more fierce than the last. The last beast, we're not even told what it is. We're just told that it's a beast greater than all the ones that came before it and a little bit different. He doesn't even describe it, just says that it's a beast, whereas the other ones are like, you know, different animals and things like that, whereas this last one... No, it's just a beast, and it's terrifying and worse and a little bit different than the ones that came before it. So at the beginning of his vision, it's just a pile of chaos. One beast after the other, worse than the one that came before it, devouring the one that came before it, stamping out what was left, eradicating everything. But then look at verse 9. There's a dramatic change in this scene. As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Look at the dramatic change of the scene that takes place from the first eight verses till now. You have chaos monster after chaos monster rising up out of the sea and creating tumult and and just chaos. We're told later that these beasts represent kingdoms or kings and kingdoms, right? Powers and authorities. And I have my own ideas as to what kingdoms those represent. I think it's pretty, pretty sure, pretty easy to figure out. But the point is that none of them are king. They're all playing king, but none of them are really king. They're all given Dominion. You see that in the first eight verses that the kingdoms that rise up are given dominion. You see that in verse six. He says, and dominion was given to it. 
But then in verse 9, the king of kings, the ancient of days, takes his seat on the throne. And you can see he's different than the rest. He's depicted as an old man. That's not, not meaning like George Burns, all right? That's not the image we have in our head. It, it depicts wisdom. The hair on his head, like wool, is not only pure, but also it's sage. It's wise. He's righteous. His throne is flames of fire, and issuing forth is flames of fire. Radiance and brilliance, you can't even really look at it. But then I love what happens in verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of great words that the horn was speaking. And as I look, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So here is the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne, purity and wisdom. And here is the beast yammering on, talking, so much so that it gets John's attention. Or, sorry, not John, Daniel. Daniel's attention. And what happens to him? The beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. And the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. They have no more authority. They have no more dominion. But they remain for a little while. Right? So here's this picture of chaos, and then on the other side, the Ancient of Days. Sits down. Now here we get to the interesting part. Verse 13. If that other stuff wasn't interesting, I think it was. But anyway. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in the first eight verses, you have kingdom after kingdom taking over, destroying the one that came before it. But then the Ancient of Days takes his seat, and he destroys the beast as well. He allows them to stand around. He doesn't obliterate them entirely like they did the other ones before them. In fact, he's not threatened by them. Right? Why do, why do kingdoms destroy the kingdom that came before it? They're threatened, right? They don't want any remnant left because any remnant might mean an uprising. So they utterly obliterate the kingdom that came before it. Beast after beast after beast does this. But then God the Father sits down, the Ancient of Days, the books are open. He kills the beast, who's talking, <laughs> throws him into the fire, leaves the others to just meander about because he's not threatened by them. And then he hands the kingdom over to whom? 
Who does Daniel say? One like the Son of Man. This is not a beast. This is not an animal. This is one like the Son of Man who comes and kneels before him on the clouds of heaven. And the Ancient of Days gives to him dominion and glory and a kingdom. But this is different. The dominion that's given to one like the Son of Man, what's different about it? It's everlasting. It will never come to an end. So we have this picture in Daniel, and we get caught up a lot of times, I think, in the metaphors and the symbols. And, and to some degree, we should. We're given the interpretation, or we're given some interpretation that follows the verses that I just read. And we're told a little bit about what it means and what it's alluding to. And we have to do some work to figure out the rest or to assume the rest or to maybe even just come up with a good conclusion on the rest. And we should do some of that. But we can't lose the point of what Daniel's vision is meant to convey. Here is dominion and kingship and authority that's given to beast after beast after beast. And they're honestly, they're wicked and corrupt. And the one that rises up after them is more wicked and more corrupt than the one that preceded it. And so they proceed to destroy the kingdom that came before it utterly and continue to rule in wicked ways. But that doesn't change the fact that the Ancient of Days is still on his throne. And then ultimately, he gives, his, he gives dominion and glory and kingship over to one like the Son of Man. Now, I think most of the time when we read Daniel 7, 13, and 14, most of us probably are thinking of the end of all time, right? Is anybody thinking about the end end? Like when Jesus comes back, the second coming of Jesus? Like does that conjure up images of the second coming of Jesus? Doesn't it, Shannon, probably? Yeah. I think for most of us, I think anybody probably growing up, um, especially in a Southern Baptist church, probably has had that in interpretation. That's a common interpretation for um, dispensation, the dispensational kind of timeline for the end times. That's not really the view that I take of this, but that's okay. Uh, I, I think there's at least something else going on here, something a little bit more imminent taking place. I think this one, like the Son of Man, is, I think it's safe to say is Jesus. Yes, I think everybody holds that, yeah. Um, the Ancient of Days being... God the Father, right? God the Father, I think we can all agree on that, gives him dominion. Now, let's go over to Matthew chapter 26, because here we're in Jesus' Passion Week, and here's um, Jesus, I think, cluing us in a little bit as to what is going on. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 57. Matthew 26, 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard uh, of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests 
and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men, these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So here is Jesus on trial. And they're trying to bring up false testimony against him. And, and it seems that nobody that comes forward, there's plenty that are coming forward that are giving false testimony, but the problem is none of them agree with one another. Um, so then, finally, Caiaphas has just had enough. And he's like, look, why don't you just tell us? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? How does he first respond? You have said so, right? <laughs> you have said so. Now, why does he do that? Why does he just say yes? I feel like, you know, with like kind of my, my friends that don't believe over here, I would love to just kind of go, see, he says right there, yes. Why does he need to do that? He says, you have said so. Well, what does Caiaphas think of the Messiah? What does Caiaphas believe the Messiah is going to be? They're ruled by Rome. They're convinced that the Messiah is going to be a person that comes in, sets up the Davidic throne, sends out Rome altogether, takes over the land, restores the nation of Israel right then and there. Is Jesus going to do that? No. So it seems like his answer is not just a simple yes, because, yeah, but not like you think, right? Yes, but let's think about this for just a second. Let's think about this differently. So he says, you have said so. You're right, but not exactly right. And then he says, um, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. What's that a reference to? Does anybody know? Got a good cross reference in your Bible? Psalm 110.1. Let's turn there real quick and just read it. Psalm 
This is a psalm of David. This psalm is, is quoted several times in the New Testament, but here's one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus says, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you're going to see me seated at the right hand of power. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? Okay. All, he, all, all authority sitting at, uh, coming from God, he's, he's going to be seated, sitting at the right hand of God. Is, uh, let me just ask you, is, is Caiaphas a friend or an enemy? Jesus. At this moment, Caiaphas is enemy. So when he says, I'm going to be seated at the right hand of power, what does that mean for Caiaphas? Yeah. What does that mean for the Sanhedrin? Right. That means that from now on, I'm the one in power. Think about that for just a second. Jesus is arrested, tied up, sitting in front of them on trial. Can't get free. He's, he's, he's done. His goose is cooked. And he tells Caiaphas, I'm the one in power here. How asinine. That's ludicrous. You're the one in power. Doesn't Jesus also say earlier, no one takes my life. I lay it down. Right? But what is, when Jesus says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. When? When does that start? It doesn't. What would you think? Based on what Jesus says, what do you think the, the right interpretation of that is? The normal reading of that would say, when does that start? According to Jesus, though, what does he say? Oh, from now she, on. Yeah, from now on, right? So it would seem that what Jesus is communicating to Caiaphas is, I'm in control of this. From now on, you're going to see me seated at the right hand of power. Now, then what does he say? And coming in the clouds. The question is, does coming in the clouds mean coming back to earth? If so, how do you understand him saying that with Caiaphas sitting there and he uses the plural you, meaning everybody here, you all, y'all. That's what he says, y'all. Y'all are going to see me coming on the clouds. It would seem like he's saying right now. Right at this moment, you're going to see me not only seated at the right hand of power, not only am I in control, but I've been given dominion. When we look back at Daniel, 
where is the Son of Man going? There's the Ancient of Days sitting down on his throne. And where does the Son of Man go? Does he leave the presence of the Ancient of Days and come to earth? Doesn't seem like it. It seems like the vision that Daniel's given is a heavenly vision. That all of this that he's looking at in Daniel chapter 7 is taking place in the courtroom of God. That he sits down on his throne and here comes the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days gives to him dominion, a crown, a crowning ceremony, essentially. An an inauguration. That indicates that he has been given all authority and his authority is going to have no end. Right? Doesn't that seem like what that means? And what is Caiaphas' reaction to this? Yeah, Caiaphas gets it. Caiaphas understands what he's talking about. And you have to keep in mind that Caiaphas is not a, you know, a Bible newbie. He's not. Probably has the entire Old Testament memorized, I guess. But a good guess. There's no question he knows both Psalm 110.1 and Daniel 7.13 and 14 and knows what they're talking about, could tell them to you right now, and quote the rest of the psalm and the rest of Daniel. No question. There's no question he knows what he's referring to. He knows that Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man, and he knows that Jesus is saying, I am taking over here. Not only am I the Son of Man, but the Ancient of Days is giving to me dominion and authority. Do you see why Caiaphas calls him a blasphemer? It seems to indicate that what Jesus is going through in the Passion is not only intended, but it's to give him authority and dominion and headship. It's not necessarily in the way Caiaphas thinks it is. In fact, Caiaphas and the rest of the Jews are about to put him to the test. Well, if you are the Son of God, prophesy. Who hits you? They say the same thing when he gets on the cross. If you are the son of God, come down off the cross. Shouldn't be that big of a deal. And if he were to come down off the cross, well, okay, well, we would believe him. But he's not, he's not able, it doesn't seem, to set up a kingdom here on earth because that's what they've got in their mind. But of course, what he's doing first, before he establishes a physical kingdom, which he will do, He's establishing a spiritual one. He's buying his people back. The king has to have a people. He's getting his people. And they're unwittingly giving him a throne. They're unwittingly giving him a crown. They unwittingly give him a purple robe. Now they don't know it, but that's the throne he came to take. And they're giving it to him. So what's interesting to me about this scene is that I came to die on a cross and that's how I'm going to win my people. That's the kind of savior and the kind of king I came to be. Not an earthly king right now. I came to be this kind of king first. I came to get dominion and glory in the spiritual realm first. And you're going to give it to me. 
That's what he's saying right here in this scene. And Caiaphas is ticked at that. (laughs) And he's unwittingly going to play the fool in this scene as he gives it to Jesus. But then we get the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, right? And Jesus rises from the dead. And everybody's freaking out about it, right? There's a buzz about everybody, and in a couple of chapters, let's go to chapter 28, Jesus meets his disciples in Galilee. We come down to verse 16. We know this is the Great Commission. Because the question is, I think that we have to ask is, well, what's the point? Okay, so Jesus is given dominion and he's given authority and he's given it right now at his death, his burial, his resurrection. He's given authority and a kingdom and a dominion. Okay, what does all that mean? Why does it actually matter? Well, here's what Matthew is telling you that it matters. Here's why Matthew is telling you it matters. Here's why Jesus is telling you that it matters. Look at verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is telling you, he's telling me, he's telling everybody that Daniel seeing that one like the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days, getting authority to a kingdom that would have no end, happened in Christ's resurrection. Now, is there some sense in which it's yet to take place? Well, yeah, of course. He will eventually come back and set up his kingdom earthly and physically, here and now. Tell me, does he already have it? Yeah. The rest of the beasts, what are they doing? They're lingering for a little while longer. They're waiting around. The Ancient of Days isn't threatened by them at all because their dominion has been given over to one like the Son of Man. He's already been crowned. He already has the throne. Dominion is his. And what does he do with it? He tells the disciples, it's mine. Therefore what? Go. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How can he guarantee that? How can he guarantee that he's with us always, even to the end of the age? Because he's received dominion and authority. He's received kingship, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, what's interesting is that what he does with this power is tell people, go and proclaim the gospel. What do you have to be afraid of? Absolutely nothing. Not only do you not have to be afraid of anything, but as you go, people will follow. People will believe, 
and will follow. Now, where will they go if they're following Jesus? Well, following means that they'll go where he went. Well, where did he go? To death. So the implication here is that you're making disciples of Christ. You're baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the destiny that they're going to walk to is to martyrdom. It's to death. But if they're really following Jesus, if they're in his kingdom, if they're his, what's going to happen to them? I go to prayer place for you. <laughs> that where I am, there you may also be. So he's telling them, not only are you following me as a disciple, you're following me to death, but in the end, the result is eternal life. You're following right behind me. Not only eternal life, but resurrection from the dead. Just like I did. The people that come under the kingship of Christ are going to fall in line with their Savior. As he did, so we will do. As he rose from the dead, so we will one day rise from the dead. That's the image that's going on here. That's what's present. Jesus tells us, look, if authority is mine, you have nothing to fear. You have no beast to be afraid of. Go and make disciples. They will follow. Now that also means some other things too, I think. I think we're tempted from time to time to get ensnared by the political discussions. Right? Y'all feel that pressure? I feel that pressure. I don't even own a TV. Right? I think we all do. You cannot read a news article anymore that's not biased. You can't. All of it wants you to prescribe to their way of thinking. That's it. Now, you may agree with their way of thinking, or you may disagree with their way of thinking, but it's a way of thinking they want you to prescribe to. We get caught up in this. We think about it all the time. It's always in front of our face. But America is not one like the Son of Man. America is a beast. Any kingdom that comes after it will destroy it utterly, wipe it off the face of the earth so that no one can dwell here called Americans anymore. I'm sure that will happen one day. It's happened with every kingdom. The more you watch the news, you think the sooner is probably going to happen, right? It's a beast like any other beast. One day it's going to be destroyed. The king that we serve has an everlasting dominion. We are exiles. We're in Babylon. Should we pray and seek the benefit of our city? Absolutely. Should we pray for its peace? Yes, because when there's peace, you have peace. He's adamant about that when you go into Babylon. 
But ultimately, are you to become Babylonians? Absolutely not. You're to be in the world and not of the world. So we have a dual citizenship. But really, our citizenship is of a kingdom where the dominion is everlasting. Does that make sense? What questions do you have about that? Thoughts, maybe? Comments? Concerns? Fears, hopes, and dreams? So you think that this passage in Daniel could um, be both resurrection and second coming? I think there is... um, Anytime you read an Old Testament prophet, one of the hardest things is we live in light of the resurrection. We've seen the story now, right? We, we, we get it. We, we saw the ending, or pretty much the ending of the story. And so we get the, all the details. And I think most of what you're seeing in the Old Testament prophets is there's not a clear line of distinction drawn between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Because to be quite honest, tell me what the real difference is. There's one difference in that, well, we still live in, with a body of flesh and we still sin and that kind of thing. That's yet to be eradicated. Um, we have, you know, we've, uh, all the enemies that, we, that are around us have yet to be vanquished, right? So th- there's a couple of things like that. But Paul says you've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's a, um, a very real way in which all of this has already taken place. So the way I think of it is that Daniel sees coming down the road two men, Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And they are, one is 10 foot behind the other. But from a distance, you can't tell that they're 10 feet apart. It's not until they get closer where we are that we can see, oh, they're not walking together. One's 10 foot behind the other. And I think a lot of what we see, and the reason there's a lot of debate about Old Testament prophecy is because of that. Because there's not a clear line of distinction between the two events always. Sometimes there's more illusion than others, but I don't think always there's a clear line of distinction. And so we really want there to be. And they're kind of like, oh, but there's not, you know? (laughs) Um, Because the spiritual reality has already taken place and won't change, you know? I'm all, I already stand before the Lord um, declared righteous. I don't feel like it right now, but in reality, I am. And so that part's not going to change, you know. So I think, that, I think some of that's going on. So yes, I think G, because of what Jesus says, I lean that it, it's more about his death, burial, and resurrection. But I would also say all of it's not fulfilled yet totally. So there's some extension on into his second coming. So I think it's kind of both, but I lean more towards the... I like that visual you just gave. Yeah. Ten so, feet apart from yeah. far away, but they look together. Right. Mm-hmm. I like right. that. Yes, Mike? So uh, Jesus' quotes or references to the Old Testament uh, passages, they're not exact, right? He does something kind of interesting. He throws the Son of Man into the first one. Throw son of man into the first well, one. So I, uh, sitting at the right hand of power, the, the Psalm 110 reference. Right. Psalm 110 doesn't have son of man. Right, right. And Jesus kind of made a point of that earlier 
mm-hmm. without saying to each other, you know, kind of pointing to himself, right. I guess, on this issue. Leaves the Pharisee silent, yeah. I, I I think it's a it's a dual reference that it has it has uh, two points. One is I am the Lord that David is referring to, that's sitting at the right hand of of power, and the implication is all my enemies are going to be my footstool. And then I think he comes up with the second reference out of out of Daniel, and it's meant to be tied together, um, meaning that. Really, what's happening in Daniel and what's happening in Psalm 110, the same event. And I think what Jesus is doing is calling them both into the foreground and saying, this is happening right now, right? Like what, what's been prophesied in the Old Testament is taking place at this very moment. So th- there's, um, you'll see sometimes, it's, especially it's, it's, um, in, in Revelation, there'll be dual references that are made to various scriptures or just allusions that are made to different uh, scriptures. And I think um, Son of Man is pretty common in, in, the, um, in the prophets. Mostly it's referring to a man, but clearly in Daniel it's the Son of Man. It's this, this individual and he's saying it's, it's him. And so I think he's saying, I'm the Lord in Psalm 110. I'm the Son of Man in Daniel 7.13. Yeah, that answer your question? I hope it does. Yeah. This, incidentally, this is not the only time he does this. He does this a couple, of, a couple other times in Matthew. One is prominent, but will throw us into a big apocalyptic discussion that I don't want to get into tonight. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I, I would just back off that reference for now because it would sort of distract from Easter and get us all thinking about the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like. Yeah, I thought with all the stuff that I want to talk about tonight, I don't know that there's time. But here, here, my intention really, honestly, is probably, I'm not sure if it's going to happen in the fall, but it's certainly going to happen before on Sunday we get into Matthew 24. Um, Matthew 24 and 25 are highly contentious. Uh, and I just mean in the church, like people have varying uh, views on it and things like that. And so before we get into Matthew 24 leading up to that for probably about, I don't know, eight to 10 weeks or so, I want to do just the, an end times study, just kind of looking at the different ways people have approached the end times and, and understanding the kind of area that people are thinking about and how they interpret the scriptures and things like that. And, um, I want to spend some time doing that before we get into the discussion on Sunday morning of Matthew 24, because it's going to be, um, there's just a lot of different views on it. And I I didn't want to necessarily tackle all that tonight, but there's some other very clear references that will throw us into a discussion like, wait a minute, what does that mean then? So um, I kind of wanted to avoid that. So I was hoping you weren't going there. (laughs) Those will be Wednesday night sessions. Yeah, I'm hoping to do Wednesday night end times discussion leading up to um, when we get into Matthew 24. So whenever we get there on on Sunday, at the pace we're going, it looks like, I don't know, five or six years from now, uh, <laughs> you know, we'll do that Wednesday night discussion. So. Eight to ten weeks. I know, I did too. Yeah, no, not in eight to ten weeks, for eight to ten weeks. 
and that's a sliding whenever that happens. And you'll magically forget. I'll men in black you before, you know, this little flash. <laughs> Put on my sunglasses. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. It's going to take 100 years, yes. Yeah, he thinks he's just a dude who is not at all the Christ. And, you know, I think it's, it's, ask a Jew today, like the Messiah, what are your thoughts? And they're like, eh, probably not going to be in my lifetime, if ever. None of them think that it's going to happen in their lifetime. I would suspect Caiaphas was the same way. I, what do we think about the second coming? think is going to happen in our lifetime? We all say, well, maybe, could, why not? But, but do we live like, hey, tomorrow is it? You know, not really. We go about our life, and most of us probably in the back of our mind, I mean, my, my, the guy that discipled me, I mentioned last week, the guy that discipled me always said, he, from the time I was like four, he always, I remember him telling me, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime, but I think it'll happen in yours. You know, the second coming is you. And I think we all kind of by default think that. I don't know if it'll happen in my time, but Grayson, maybe it'll happen in yours, you know? And Jews are no different as far as the Messiah coming. I, mean, I don't think Caiaphas thinks it's, he's here. I don't think he, he thinks that it's going to happen in his lifetime. And lo and behold, he killed the Son of God, you know? Ugh, that's got to hurt, right? So he clearly thinks this man is blaspheming. Um, yeah, I mean, it would probably be better to ask them, but I would say from the ones that I've asked, there have been either, I don't believe that that actually took place, like they're fanciful accounts of a rabbi. Um, there, there are some that would say he was a prophet and that he did some of these miracles like Elijah would have or like whomever, name another one, you know, um, that they would have. Um, so it, it, similar, you know, um, I think you, you find that amongst a lot of people that as far as not just Jews, but atheists in, in general. Yeah. Why, Jean? why did they always skip uh, Isaiah 53? Why did they always, oh, why did they always skip it? Yeah. I there's an interesting little video out there that I've seen. I, I, and it was a, it's a guy who, that's his mission is he goes around Jerusalem and he, talks about, I can't remember the name of the video, it's on YouTube, but it's kind of fascinating because he, he's sharing the gospel with Jews, and he's using Isaiah 53 to do it, and uh, so he kind of talks about how he had to die, and then he compares it to the life. It's a pretty fascinating video, you know, most of them are kind of confounded, you know, by, by that, it's true, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, well, and some of them will, will misunderstand the text and rule out, um, well, Jesus couldn't be because of this, that, and the other. And, you know, um, there's the Jeconiah curse. I mentioned that at the beginning of Matthew, but that they think he was, you know, well, he's from the line of Jeconiah, so 
Jeconiah's line is cursed, but he's obviously of David, both Mary and Joseph. So. It's interesting. Any other questions or comments or thoughts? All right, well, as far as Easter goes, Resurrection Sunday, we have the church fest coming up Saturday, so we hope to see you there. Um, but as far as Resurrection Sunday, I think it is, and there's a, there's a temptation to make it kind of like pomp and circumstance, you know? Um, but we celebrate Jesus' resurrection every single Sunday. It's, that's why we meet on Sunday. Um, so let's keep that in mind, too, that, that it's important to be aware that there are going to be visitors here, maybe. There, you know, hopefully there will be people that may not normally come. Your dad, Shannon's dad. So that'll be at least one. Um, so let's make the effort, at least, to be overly welcoming, overly warm and kind, shake their hands. You guys always are, I know that, but still go out of your way, maybe to sit in a different place than you normally sit, you know, or... (laughs) Wait a minute! Wait just a minute! Now, go share the gospel? Fine. All right. <laughs> Sit in a different place on Sunday. You have crossed the line, my friend. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, go out of your way. If you see a, if you see a visitor or just, even just a face that you've never seen before, it doesn't matter if you know that they're a visitor or not, just somebody that you've never met or seen before, maybe sit by them this Sunday instead. You know, it's, uh, I think Resurrection Sunday or Easter is... A lot of it is for the culture itself because there's a heightened awareness of Jesus' resurrection. We have an opportunity, probably more so than just about any other time in the year, to share the gospel and to impart uh, grace and mercy and peace and love to them. And so sort of the Easter celebration is a lot for that, you know, for the heightened awareness. For us, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. So let's just kind of keep that in mind as we, we go. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, grateful for just the time to, to read your word, and regardless of opinions or thoughts or, you know, maybe concerns of, um, of, you know, what this means and relating, understanding all the signs and symbols and all of those kinds of things, you know, regardless of, of all of that, I pray that um, what we understand from all of it is that you're sitting on your throne and nothing that's happened whether it be in our day and time or the times that have occurred before us or the future, none of it has threatened that. And I pray, Lord, that we would just, we would understand that we're secure. We have the most security of anybody in this world. There's literally nothing that anyone can do to us that would threaten or scare us. Because we know, that, we know that you hold the keys to life and death. So in the, that sense of security, I pray that we would look at Easter as a joyous celebration of all that you have accomplished for us and all that you are to us so that we can go out in that security to the rest of the world and 
boldly proclaim the gospel without fear of reprisal or repercussions. Because we know you have all authority and dominion. That Jesus reigns at your right hand and is in the process of making your enemies his footstool. So I pray that we would go out conquering with the gospel. Letting mercy and grace go before us. Imparting peace and love and forgiveness to a culture that is in dire need of something good. I pray that we would be the bearers of good news. In Jesus' name, amen.